0: Hey guys, it's Breyers. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Melthology. Melthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works: Show up at the melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9:30 p.m., we'll collect all of the art and three dollars for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck. And that is at Melt
1: Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host Matt Kennedy, and this is sort of a special show. Um, you may have uh, recently heard my appearances on Kevin Smith's Fat Man on Batman, and uh, we've done a video podcast, which will probably be up by the time that this this particular uh, show airs. And so, um, what we talked about is an artifact that I came across—a preliminary page from the late 1930s that may help to credit uh, the artist Jerry Robinson with the creation of the Joker, which is something that he had always maintained. And um, as we spoke about with Kevin Smith on his show, um, the way that this all came about is, is kind of amazing, and I figured it would be a good idea at this point to really dive headlong into it and let everybody know exactly um, how I came across the page and what kind of research we did to arrive at this, at this possibility that not only did Jerry Robinson, who has long been credited e- even by Bob Kane with creating Robin, um, possibly also um, the creator of The Joker. And um, I think we're just going to dive headlong into this. So um, first of all, I think it's important to talk about uh, how this came about. And this podcast, Pod Sequentialism, uh, grew out of a exhibition that I had put together called Pop Sequentialism at La Luz de Gallery back in May of 2011. It was at the time the first uh, survey show of modern comic book art. In other words, it wasn't a, a show that revolved around a specific character or um, one artist. Instead, it embraced uh, what I felt to be the most important um, collaborations of artist and writer and anchor uh, of the past twenty five years, um, now kind of collectively known as the Dark Ages, also known as the modern age. And um, while I was putting this show together and, and it was the culmination of about two decades of uh, of research and collecting and and saving pages that um, were part of my personal collection that um, I acquired enough pieces to put on a show uh, with the pieces being available for sale, which is also important to me that I wanted to open up comic book art to some of our fine art collectors, uh, people who had already been supporting artists like Robert Williams uh, and some of the other ZAP comic artists, underground guys who had transitioned as had Robert Crumb into fine artist status and whose work was starting to become quite valuable. And I noticed that among fine art collectors that superhero comic art by actual comic book artists was not getting the respect that I felt it deserved. And it was important to me to put together an exhibition that centered specifically around heroic characters. And so um, I stayed away from the easy pitch of alternative comics and um, even the Vertigo stuff that I included was... um, mainly centered around heroic comic characters and not necessarily horror or um, other alternative um, comic genres. And while I was putting this together, I came across um, a number of sites, uh, websites that cater to comic art collectors. One of those sites was was the site Comic Art Collectors and there were several advertisers on that site and I would um, sporadically go through and look and see what kind of pages they had and if there was anything that I thought that I could use in the Pop Sequentialism exhibition. And there was a lot of stuff that didn't fit the scope that was still amazing. Um, And it was sort of important to me to know that there would be a follow-up. And I thought very long and hard about the second um, Pop Sequentialism exhibition of being work by artists who were more famous for their superhero comics and just showcasing their other work. Now, one of the, the sites that I'd come across was a website that had been set up at the dawn of websites. It was definitely uh, more of a Excel document just put up online than a highly functioning website. And even when I was looking back in 2010 and 2011 uh, to see what was available, it was frustrating because it didn't format to the size of... Any monitor really of the day, whether the um, the smaller monitors or the or the wider sixteen by nine, and it required a lot of scrolling sideways to see um, from column A, say, to column um, J, and some of the the columns that would be included in on this site would be the name of the artist, the title that they worked on, and then possibly the anchor or the writer the date that it was published, um, the size, and the description of the artwork, and then in the final uh, column would be the price if it was available. And what was very frustrating about this particular uh, website is that the majority of the pages that he had listed were not for sale. And so I could see many people perhaps visiting the site, um, he did advertise on Comic Art Fans, and um, coming across the page that he had and becoming so frustrated after looking at page after page that they might have wanted to purchase and um find that they were not for sale but listed that they would just go away and i i credit that difficult to maneuver um html or or website with um with the availability of the pages that i was able to to purchase from him and i sort of dedicated an entire day and a half there was a day where um my girlfriend at the time was out of town, and I was uh, kind of laid up ill and figured I was going to spend the next day and a half fighting a cold or the flu and just going through absolutely every listing on this guy's page. And about a day into it, I I found I was going to go from uh, left to right instead of going from the pages that I, I wanted and seeing if they were available. I would just scroll down and see what was available. And if I saw a price, I would scroll to the left and, and see... Um, what it was and if it was something I was interested in and then I would open it up and look at it because there were links to to artwork. So there was a lot of scanned artwork on the site. And I imagine um, when he had set this up that scanning those images probably occupied a lot of bandwidth and that may have contributed to why he was reluctant to either add or take stuff down. Um, but one thing I did come across in going down from top to bottom on this on this website, when I came to you for Unknown, there was a listing for Unknown Artists, I came across a couple of uh, very early Batman uh, pages. Um, and among them, in this unknown, um, when I did click on it, and they were they were very expensive, as I recall, one was $350, one was maybe 400 and one was 750 and it was double-sided. And they were listed as preliminary pages, and they were credited to, I believe, Batman number 10. And when I looked at them... Um, I could see that they were preliminary pages, but they were inked, which is very, very uncommon, um, almost for any preliminary pages, but especially for for preliminary pages of that era. And since they were credited as being Batman number 10, I knew that the penciler on Batman number 10 had been Jerry Robinson. And when I opened up the images that accompanied the the listing on, on this website, he did have it credited to George Rousos, um as anchor and Jerry Robinson as penciler. And when I further got into looking at the pages, I, I, I noticed something that would become the spark that ignited this very uh, long journey that I've been on with these, with these particular pages. I did address them um, previously in, in the, the Pop Sequentialism blog and I'm going to post a much longer blog which will have the images in it as well. So by the time you listen to this, um, you can go to the Pop Sequentials and blog and pull up um, the um, you know who really created the Joker um, entry, and it will have the images of the pages, and you can you can look at them yourselves, and you can um, arrive at whatever opinion you'll have of them, and hopefully this information will help to um, bolster whatever opinion you have. But what I noticed is that uh, these pages were the the origin of Robin, and when I did a little research, I realized that it was Batman number 11 that was the retelling of Robin's origin, not number 10. And um, when I opened up the images, I could see that it was the death of the, the Flying Graysons. But on the back of the page was something that does not appear in either the original origin of the character of Robin or in, in the retelling of the story. And it's something that doesn't may not seem like much on the surface. And a prima facie um, argument might not seem to hold much water, but when you compare it to the other information that we have about the time and about the characters, it becomes very important. And it was a clown that um, there are characters, these gangsters, and one of them um, is speaking to the clown, calls him Boss. They refer to Batman being uh, on site, and there's several panels that have this, this clown character. And the clown is um, very much a circus clown, but also very much in the style of a Harlequin that you might have expected to find in a deck of playing cards in the 1930s. And um, playing cards have evolved. Um, even the bicycle decks, which are considered classic card decks, their jokers have evolved over the years. And in the 1930s, The the cards that one might be playing if they were tournament players or or bridge players might be a little bit different than the ones that we have today, and the Harlequins that were on those cards are much more in line with, um, if anybody has ever seen them, there is a a very famous um, drawing by Jerry Robinson from 1939 of a Joker playing card and uh, it's been exhibited in several classic comic art exhibitions. It was, uh, I believe, originally exhibited in um, an exhibition of Jerry's still life um, cartoons in the uh, the late 60s, and um, that strip was something that Jerry won a Rubin Award for. We'll talk a little bit more about that um, a little bit later in this program. But the appearance of a clown um, in the circus origin of robin is important because of its absence clowns would have been around they would have absolutely have been around at the time uh, in, in any circus where um acrobats were performing but they were never drawn into the story if you go back and look at those those early batman comics this particular character and any clown really is absent from that origin story um And this became very fascinating to me because I immediately thought, well, hey, you know, maybe this guy who we know was the creator of Robin, or at least the co-creator of Robin, um, and who had claimed um, over the years to have been the creator or co-creator of the Joker, um, maybe he thought of them at the same time and held back on one to bring back later or, or something to that effect. And that was complete speculation on my part and before I started to dig into this. It was what I was thinking of, you know, kind of at the forefront of why it was important that I acquire these pages. And so what I did is I became very excited at seeing these and was worried immediately that they weren't available because this site looked incredibly out of date and possibly that it, it was not something that he maintained an accuracy of his archive. But um, there were three of these preliminary pages. Um, I thought that perhaps if I bought all three, that he might say no, that none of them were available. So I chose uh, the one that I absolutely wanted, which was that double-sided page, and another page which had Robin prominently figured on it. Robin is one of my favorite characters, has always been one of my favorite comic book characters, and I always felt that uh, Robin was a possibility for any young boy that... um, not too many of us were born millionaires or billionaires. Uh, none of us were born on other planets and um, came here as alien babies. And um, none of us, as far as I know, are superpowered mutants. But that a regular boy trained by a professional could become a, you know, a constant vigilante. And that also the idea of the Robin character is that we all start out as, as boys and we. we graduate into manhood, trying to escape the shadow of our fathers, which is the Dick Grayson story of, of Robin um, constantly trying to escape the shadow of Batman. And so um, I had a particular interest in in the character, and and therefore it was also important that I have in my collection, my personal collection, a drawing of Robin by the man who had created Robin. Now I'm going to take a little quick break here. Um, before we we head back into this and explain a little bit more about the origin of the the possible um, um, red herring or um, as some people are calling it Holy Grail of um, Batman lore and uh, to hear from some of our sponsors. And um, I wanted to let people know because I've been getting some um, correspondences that are inquiring about ad rates and that type of thing that uh, you can go ahead and send an email to me at uh, info at popsequentialism.com, which is P-O-P-S-E-Q-U-E-N-T-I-A-L-I-S-M.com, popsequentialism.com, altogether. no spaces, no hyphens. And um, I'll be happy to send you out a, an advertising um, rate book. In the meantime, uh, please enjoy a word from our sponsors.
0: Melt you the school at Meltdown, where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now.
1: Hello and welcome back to Pop Sequentialism. I am, of course, Matt Kennedy, your host. And what we're talking about is who really created the Joker. Now before the break um, I explained um, how I came across these pages and um, I was explaining that I had um, selected two rather than three of the pages because I was afraid that if I bought all three that the person who owned them wouldn't sell them to me if they were even available. And that was a concern since the website that I purchased them from looked to have been set up in 1995 and um, possibly not updated. But um, long story short, I did go through some of the rest of the pages that were available. Among them was a a modern romance page that was credited to Vince Coletta, which um, I could see was clearly Jack Kirby possibly inked by Vince Coletta and featured a woman that was very much an influence on the way that um, Dave Stevens drew his women. And so it was also a great page. I used to go and visit Jack um, at his house out in uh in Thousand Oaks, and um, knew him a little bit, and I bought artwork from him. He's a great guy, and he had gotten his, his work back from, from Marvel at that time. And um, I knew also that uh, Dave Stevens was close with Jack and was very influenced by Jack, and it was great, having also known Dave Stevens when he was alive to a degree, that um, it was great to have this page. Um, and I also searched for a couple of other less expensive um, daily strips. And I picked up some Terry and the Pirates pages, um, one from the 1950s, one from the early 70s. And when I um, sent an email and um, was waiting to hear back, um, and I finally did, and almost all the pages that I had requested were available. There was a Peanuts page, I believe, that was not available. And um, asked you know, how to proceed with the transaction, and I was qualified. He, um, having not done business with me, asked me for some references, which I supplied uh, some other um, art collectors that I knew. Uh, Felix Liu, who is now um, an art artist representative, was somebody that I was, um, had known personally and, and had um, done a little business with. And he had done business with Felix and um, okayed it, and I was able to send him a company check and um, then just anxiously awaited for those pages to arrive. And as I explained to to Kevin Smith on his Fat Man on Batman, when I opened the package and I finally got it about a week and a half later, um, the top piece was not a piece that I had ordered, and I became you know immediately concerned and thought that perhaps uh, I was not going to get everything that I had I had wanted to purchase. But it turned out that he had included accidentally an extra page, which I did send back to him. And when I looked at the pages, I became convinced more than ever that this was something that these pages were very important. And I encourage you, if um if you're in a position to do so to um, pull up the Pop Sequentialism blog and look at these pages, and they'll be, you'll be able to expand them larger so you can get kind of a good look at them. And what I want to point out, uh, one thing which is hard to convey, is I'm, I've been collecting comic book art for a very long time, and I'm very familiar with how the sizes, thicknesses, and varieties of paper have changed over the years. And what I can say absolutely, and no one is contesting this, Is that the age of these pages is consistent with um, original comic book illustration board used by comic book professionals in the late 30s and early 40s? Um, What I can also tell you is that the degree of wear on them um, is consistent with a paper that is that old, not wear that it has been through. You know, it's been handled a lot, but that there is a a breakdown in the um, the paper itself. Um, uh, Paper is. it it tends to um, degrade in a specific way. Uh, Sometimes a little bit of of what may look like surface mold um, can appear in certain pages, and it it just comes from, from the age and the type of paper that it was. Now, one of the reasons that preliminary pages of specifically the early 1940s and late 30s are so rare is because there were hundreds, if not thousands, of paper drives in the early years of World War II. One of the reasons that a mummy one-sheet from Universal is more valuable than a Dracula or Frankenstein one-sheet is because the mummy one-sheets are extremely rare. Um, Almost all of those um, original film art one-sheets were recycled immediately and um, became part of either the war effort or just the rationing that was happening with paper for um, regular commercial use. And as a result of that, most comic book artists... Uh, did not waste their illustration board. Um, Paper got more expensive during the war years. Um, Cartooning was not a particularly lucrative field, and so wasting um, paper by not using it was um, not very common. Um, If you talk to any of the professionals, if you read any of the autobiographies of people ranging from um, Will Eisner to Jack Kirby and almost anybody in between, um, Siegel and Schuster, or um, uh, Simon and Schuster, a um, and Schuster. rather <laughs> sorry. That um, you you get an idea that um, there wasn't a lot of waste going on. That um, a lot of stuff was recycled. Pencils were routinely erased and um, redrawn and then inked. If there was a mistake with the ink, um, the ink was lightened with um, heavy erasers and then sanded down sometimes. And then um, white inks were used to cover. Any of the blemishes, um, sometimes even gouache and paint, um, and then that was drawn over. And one thing that I researched when um, looking into Jerry's claim on the on the Joker was I found out that when he was Bob Kane's assistant and he drew almost all of the um, the Batman um, adventures that were in Detective, um, starting after the first couple, that he was constantly redrawing everything that Bob Kane had drawn, that um, Bob was not a particularly good draftsman, and he had met Jerry as a young boy, gave him basically his first job. He was still a teenager, and um, he uh, he would be responsible for um, redrawing the strip. And as I dug even deeper into it, um, I came across a lot of the um, materials that he had put out there. Um, I found out, of course, that... Uh, That Jerry was sort of a selfless guy. He did a lot more fighting for other people's rights than he ever did for his own. Um, He was responsible for getting um, Bill Finger more credit as the co-creator of Batman and as the the primary creator of the Joker, which was something that Bob Kane denied for years and finally relented in the 1990s, which was about two decades after Bill Finger's death. And so um, if you talk to anybody who worked with Jerry... You uh, get a picture that he wasn't a braggart; that he never claimed to um, to do anything that he hadn't done, and was actually the opposite, um, much more likely to um, not say anything on his own behalf than to um, than to try and give other people in his orbit credit. And um, people who are familiar with some of the the great comic artists and personalities who have fought for creators' rights over the years may know that. Um, Jerry and Neil Adams were central to getting uh, Superman's creator's credit um, for Superman as the 1970s Christopher Reeve movie was in production. And it was a midnight phone call from Jerry to the um, the Warner Brothers lawyers that actually sealed that deal and got them credit and got them insurance, which is what they're actually really fighting for. Um, the idea of a life beyond um, for um as far as royalties and that type of thing, was was much less common even in the 1970s, but definitely wasn't an issue at all in the 1940s. And um, while a lot of people have have um, wondered why he worked so hard on behalf of Siegel and Schuster and didn't work so hard on behalf of himself, I found out that Jerry was a very successful guy, uh, honestly, and wasn't somebody who made his only living um, drawing comic books for other people. Um, You know, I mentioned that he had done the editorial strip Still Life, which was an award-winning, a Rubin Award-winning strip, but he also had several fine art exhibitions in the 1960s, including um, an exhibition where he um, was—his work was shown alongside Roy Lichtenstein's, and it was a succession of his Still Life um, single-panel strips, uh, very much in the same vein as the Warhol and Lichtenstein um, pop art tribute pieces— I discovered in doing that research that um, in 1975, a Mel Ramos copy, fine artist Mel, R- Mel Ramos, uh, copy of a Jerry Robinson Joker cover was included in the cartoon and comic strip art show on Madison Avenue, which Jerry actually helped put together. And at that time, Mel's uh, painting was appraised at $165,000 and hung opposite the original Robinson drawing, for which Jerry had only been paid hundred bucks and um he thought it was kind of funny he he wasn't um bitter about it, and um had already at that point spearheaded a um one of the first syndications for um American cartoonists overseas. He had already been um a teacher at um the uh, fledgling cartoonist and illustrator school, which was formed by um illustrator Bern Hogarth and Silas Rhodes and which became the school of visual arts so s v a um, had Jerry as a teacher and several of his students wound up being Steve Ditko, who Jerry actually helped get a scholarship for, Don Heck, Marie Severin, um, a bondage comic artist, Eric Stanton, and Jack Abel. And during that time, Jerry and Will Eisner formed a Speakers Bureau whereby Jerry and Byrne would bring giant sketchbooks in to illustrate in front of, um, you know, seated crowds in, uh, college auditoriums and, um, other, um, fine art societies. And they would emphasize the fine art elements of cartooning. This was in the 1950s. And, um, you realize that he was there for 10 years working four hours a night, five days a week. Um, as an illustrator, he was also teaching at Pratt Parsons and the new school. So, um, Jerry was someone who really did dedicate his life to the illustrative arts and making it a better career venue for the people that followed him. Now, um, a few other things I think that are important to to tell about Jerry is that um, Wally Wood was actually uh, Jerry's best man at his wedding. So Wally and Tatiana were um, guests and the... Um, the primary guests at, uh, at Jerry's wedding to his wife, um, in 1955, uh, his wife's name was Grow. And, um, she was also a lecturer, um, worked in, um, the medical and psychiatric field. And when, um, I tried to contact Jerry's estate when I first came across these pages, um, it involved learning a lot about his, his biographical history and I found out that while he had, you know, while um, he was given co-credit for Joker, he was never properly credited, or, or for Robin, he was never properly credited for the Joker. And um, that the iconic logo with Batman's head with the bat wings was also an uncompensated Jerry Robinson creation. And that anybody who would have possibly been in the room when the Joker was created was at this point already passed away. and But I was able to get quite a bit of detail about the day that that happened. And you can read a lot of this in uh, Jerry's um, autobiography, but um, he talks about being an 18-year-old student at Columbia. He was taking night classes when Batman got the green light as a separate title from Detective Comics. And Bob Kane, Bill Finger, and Jerry Robinson needed to come up with four new stories for Batman number one. Um, Superman had recently transitioned from a character in Action Comics to his own comic, was a huge success, and um, DC National Publications were um, in a position to expand that line because they were doing so well with it, and Batman was the natural um, next um, superhero character. So, um, you know, as it happened, um, it was very quick To come up in addition to their ongoing work in Detective, and if you look at the cover dates of Batman number one and Detective um, number uh, thirty-eight, the the first appearance of Robin being in Detective number thirty-eight, the first appearance of the Joker being in Batman number one, that um, the cover dates are nebulous. Um, They could have been the same week. Um, One is listed as being spring, and um, one is uh, listed as being April. And so um, understanding that the lead-up to publication um, with the cover dates is is not so much different than it is today. It's often three to four months um, ahead of what the date on the actual comic is so that a comic with the cover date of, say, April 1940 um, may be shipping as early as January. And that means that the artwork would have needed to have been completed, finished, um, photographed, sent to the printer, and... Um, been waiting for stacks for reproduction to be shipped out to newsstands across America. So the art would have been done on both um, in 1939, probably, not 1940. And um, with that deadline, um, Jerry had an idea that um, he was taking a writing writing class at, um, at Columbia, and he figured he could get class credit for the Batman story, and um, Bob Kane and Bill Finger were happy to let him write one because it would help with the deadline. Um, Bill was actually a, a very good writer, but he was a very slow writer, and Bob's involvement at this point was almost nil. He, he had very little to do with his own comic, but his name was on the marquee as the creator, the one thing that he did insist upon. Uh, something that um, critics of Stan Lee have um, have have said of him, that um, some people have said that uh, the one... one biggest contribution that stanley made to the marvel universe was signing his name to absolutely everything um and when jerry was uh, trying to think about this this new story he thought back to um something he had learned in his class and they were studying conflict in fiction and this was a writing class he was taking so he was determined to develop an outstanding villain based on the importance of conflict in fiction Up to this point, uh, there were no supervillains in comics. It was all gangsters. So um, Superman would fight gangsters with guns. Batman would fight gangsters. Um, And Jerry thought that a villain with a sense of humor would offset the seriousness of Batman and might appeal to kids. And Jerry was a teenager, so he was really um, not far away from being a kid himself. Now, the word Joker came to mind because card games had always been popular in the Robinson household. Um, His dad was a, a poker player. Uh, His mom was a bridge champion, and one of his brothers was a tournament card player. So Jerry brought the idea to Bob and Bill, who loved it, but they persuaded Jerry to let Bill write the story using Jerry's premise because um, they didn't want to have such a great idea be handled by a fledgling writer who had never written anything before. And uh, the rest is history, except the credit. Um, Bill or, or, um, Jerry writes in his memoir that um, he cried, that um, he really thought that um, that this was important for him, that um, he had really wanted to do this. But he did, in fact, agree that it would have. It was a better story in the hands of Bill Finger. And so, while Jerry designed the idea of the character, it was Bill who wrote the story of the Joker, and gave a personality to this idea that Jerry had come up with. Um, and we've seen in in museums Jerry's concept drawing of the Joker's playing card, which is dated 1939. I don't think anybody's ever disputed that. And the Robin story would have also been developed in 1939 uh, as well, to hit an April 1940 street date for Detective Comics number 38. And Robinson was not just inking but completely redrawing Bob Kane pages, from the stories preceding it on a monthly basis. And as it happens, they couldn't come up with four new stories, so they had to use a Hugo Strange story, which had been produced for Detective, um, and shift that into Batman No. 1. And so uh, while it had never appeared in Detective before, it had originally been written for that, and the inability for them to come up with more stories pushed it towards Batman Number 1. Now, it's likely that... Robinson would have been practicing the Robin story in between inking and redrawing the Kane stories. So preliminary pages that I obtained are likely from well before the retelling of Robin's origin in, in Batman number 11. Now, where it becomes an issue for me, as I said, is that preliminary pages don't often get inked. And since on the front side of the, um, the page that has the clown on the back of it, um, that's a standard comic book layout. It's three rows, um, pretty much two or three boxes per row, as you would expect in any comic book of, of the era. Um, the backside, which has the clown drawn into it, has an extra penciled-in um, vertical row, um, oh, sorry, horizontal row, that would never have seen publication. And um, and also it being drawn on the back of the page, um, having the other side inked, as you can see in, in, the, in the pictures that I'll, I've presented on, on the blog, um, it, it's strange that um, one or two of these panels are identical to the panels that did appear later in Batman number 11. So if you had these panels already done, and since these guys were often behind schedule, why didn't they just draw out the rest of that page? Why did they ink this page and then do nothing with it? It's always been a strange notion to me, unless they decided to ink it so that it wouldn't get erased and that the page wouldn't get discarded. And a lot of people who have um, bought into the the Bob Kane um, telling of Batman history, and and Bob has had to change his telling of history a couple of times to accommodate for the fact that um, there were witnesses around that gave credit to other people and at a certain point Bob had to um offer up credit to at least Bill Finger um it's it's strange that he said that it came from Conrad Weitz, The Man Who Laughs um and if you look at the characters absolutely the Joker that we know today um is has a very strong resemblance to Conrad Veidt's character The Man Who Laughs but in 1939-1940 The Man Laughs would not have been playing in any movie theater uh, in the area at all. There was no television. Um, We do know that Bill Finger and Jerry Robinson were very big film buffs. And after a conversation between the two, it's very possible that that character would have evolved. But um, it was Jerry Robinson's dad who owned a movie theater. Jerry's dad owned the first movie theater in Trenton, New Jersey. And Jerry was exposed to Murnau and other German expressionist cinema that helped mold the dark shadows of the early Batman comics. And Jerry considered Bill Finger a mentor who deepened his appreciation of expressionist cinema because they had a, a, a language that they both shared, both being fans of of film. And if you combine these these recollections, and um, you know, I don't want to dismiss George Russos here because George Russo was brought in to assist. Jerry Robinson on Batman um, after issue number two, I believe. And he was brought in as an assistant to help out Jerry. And George's recollection of Robinson's Joker was more of a Harlequin character than the Conrad Veit man who laughs that we all know. And George also recalled that Jerry was a late sleeper in the early days from balancing his classes at Columbia and drawing comics into the wee hours. So um, when you sew all this information together, and you realize that um, you got a, a kid, an eighteen-year-old kid who's going to college and balancing a life and multiple jobs to make ends meet, um, and and not getting necessarily ahead of his deadlines. And you've got a writer who's delivering his scripts late, and you've got a creator who doesn't really contribute much to the um, to the um, the character or the comics. Um, you realize that a lot of the work is being left in the hands of the actual creator, creative people, the pencilers, the inkers, and um, of course, to a great degree, the great Bill Finger. Um, Bill was not a really popular guy among other comics professionals um, because he wasn't as very outgoing. And so his friendship with Jerry was pretty special. Um, and uh, there's not I don't know any, anybody who's had anything really bad to say about Bill Finger, but um, that a lot of people didn't know him well. And, um, you know, we've addressed the war effort paper drives. We've addressed the rarity of preliminary pages. Um, You've got standard comic size grid on one side and something else on the other side with only half of it inked. And what it's always seemed to me, and I don't think this is a stretch, is that either Jerry or George recognized that the backside of this incomplete and unpublished preliminary page was significant enough to ink portions of it to better preserve the ideas that were present on it. In other words, there was much much less of a chance of it getting tossed if it was inked. Much less of a chance of someone pulling a, a page out of a collection of illustration boards, erasing the pencils, and starting over from scratch, which was something that happened at virtually every um, comic book production house at the time. Um, as I said, there's two other pages from the series I have one of them, the other one I left with the person that I bought the other pages from. And when I got the pages and told, I contacted the, um, the seller and let him know that I thought that there was something historically important about these and I recommended that he take the third one um, down from sale and that I would buy it if he wanted to sell it, but I was recommending that he keep it because the information and the research that I felt that I was going to be able to embark upon would make that page much more valuable. And... I also had to ask him where he got them. It was important to me to know where these pages come from. And he let me know that he acquired them at a Sotheby's auction in the early 90s. And I found out that Jerry would frequently donate old art pages to auctions that benefited various charities. Um, Some of those charities were for other illustrators and other comic book professionals. He certainly donated a lot of pages in the 70s to help the um, Siegel and Schuster cause. But he was also very much involved in in raising money for... um, Against hunger in Africa and against apartheid. And so, in that time frame of the late 80s and early 90s, it's more likely that he would have been selling pages for one of those charities instead of for um, a comic illustrator rights so or that type of thing. But, um, you know, since the clown panels are on the back of an incomplete and unpublished page, it's easy to picture an artist thumbing through a, a file of old drawings and tossing a pile of them into a donation envelope. Since it was in the back and not in the front, and since Jerry was not the type of guy to toot his own horn and had already done pretty well for himself and therefore wasn't desperate, it's um, not difficult to imagine that um, he would have just grabbed a section of these, not thought much about it, and stuck them in the envelope. and. The collector who acquired them was the sole owner until I purchased them from him in 2011. He didn't know what he had, and I've spent a considerable amount of time collecting evidence and interviews and published statements from other people who were alive at the time. And I've, I've had contact, you know, with, um, with a few of these people that um, were at least around people like Jerry, Bob, Bill, George Russo, and even Mort Meskin, Dick Sprang, and DC Editor Whitney Ellsworth. And um, with none of them being alive, that is the sum total of people who would have had access to the information as it went down prior to Batman number 1 coming out. Now, you hear people refer to pages as holy grails, and certainly all comic book art is unique. Um, but I don't think there's another comic book page like this with regard to how it changes the canon and possibly rights or wrong, because... What you're looking at here, and even on—you can look at the clown and say, okay, well, that's not the Joker. Well, my argument is that it is at least a prototype of the Joker that was being thought of in the story of the Robin origin. And since the only clown character that emerges from the pen of either Bill Finger, Bob Kane, or Jerry Robinson is the Joker, then you have at least in this drawing a prototypical Joker, and what makes this kind of more earth shattering is that this character is somehow responsible for the death of Robin's parents. So you're changing two, you know, tried and true truths of the DC comic universe in a single page and from the pencil of the man who created both characters, one of which, undisputably, Robin, the other, um, I think most comic professionals at this point in time would say, "Yeah, um, Jerry Robinson was a co-creator of the Joker," but I think that this page does help bolster that claim, and I hope that it at least causes people to take another look at the way that this went down. And for me, you know, I look at something like a Todd McFarlane Spider-Man cover, which sells at auction for about seven hundred thousand dollars with the buyer premium. And I have to think, well, my gosh, you know, there's a whole bunch of Todd McFarlane Spider-Man covers. Um, this is a unicorn among unicorns. It is a historically significant alternate reality to what we know as the Batman canon. And it cannot be, um, you know, underpresented. It's It's the type of thing that we've never come across. You know, an unpublished drawing by the man credited as the co-creator of Robin that possibly implicates the Joker in the death of Robin's parents and may once, in all, once and for all prove that that artist was also responsible for creating the Joker. It's, it's just mind-blowing to me. And when you kind of go back and look at how things were at the time and not through a lens of how things are done in modern comics, you have to kind of understand that the situation that results in this page's survival, it becomes a kind of evidence, and an evidence that is not too difficult to look at and say, okay, well, this, this fits a specific theory. And having spoken with a lot of um, fans of Batman and a lot of people who are comic historians, um, people t- tend to break up into two different camps. There are the people who um, loved you know, the Marvel movies and thought that Jack Kirby's family asking for um, reparations for the characters that he created was somehow um, an insult to them and their enjoyment of the product that he brought them. And then there's the people who appreciate um, the importance of the creator. And since almost all of comic contracts back in that day did not address Um, The ownership and perpetuity of characters created while being employed by that company. And since all contracts favor the party that did not draft them, and all of the contracts drafted in that day, and still to this day, for the most degree, um, are drafted by the publishers, then... You have to kind of appreciate it for what the system was then and not what the system is now. Now it is very possible to sign away your rights to anything. Then that system did not exist. And actually um, publishers fought for a system that favored the, um, the idea that uh, people that they hired were responsible for what was being produced for them because if anything happened – that was controversial or caused any kind of backlash, the publisher could say, well, hey, we just published this. It's not our fault. It's this person, it's this writer, it's this creator, it's this artist. And now for those same companies to make the opposite argument that um, no, by paying somebody as a work for, worker for hire, we own everything, is is a little different and it requires very different language in the contracts. Understand that the contracts that existed then Actually, favor the idea that he would have been very much a part of the creation of this character, and under today's standards, he should be credited as a creator. Um, I don't think that there's a movement in Robinson's family to fight for any Joker money, and um, at this point, I think that they would just be happy if someone said, "Yeah, you know what? We know he he created the character, or he helped create the character, and um, you know, it'd be nice to see his name in the products in the movies." Uh, just as it was absolutely wonderful to sit in a dark movie theater and see based on characters created by Jack Kirby in the last Avengers movie. Um, Basically brought tears to my eyes, made me almost speechless. I'd love to see that happen for Jerry Robinson. I don't think it's going to happen in time for Suicide Squad, but I hope that it does happen at a certain point whenever they use the Joker character. And um, you know, without beating the point home, I read a while back, that someone had x-rayed the Mona Lisa and there was a Da Vinci self-portrait underneath it. To me, this is like x-raying the Mona Lisa and finding a photograph, not a drawing, of Michelangelo underneath it or maybe even Dolly winking because it's that ground-shaking to me. It's a piece of real art with real-world ramifications and you know i invite everybody to go to you know the pop sequentialism blog to look at the images and piece it together for themselves again i want to i want to stress that the the clown is very much in the style of a harlequin which is exactly how george rousseau publicly described robinson's creation of the joker and the absence of a clown in the retelling of that origin story would seem to signal that Somebody at DC, whether it's Bob Kane or whether it's, um, editor Whitney Ellsworth, um, made the conscious decision in retelling the Robin story to take a clown, the clown out and whether they did so because they felt like this would give too much credence to this teenage kid that worked for Bob Kane or, um, whether they were, um, worried that it would expose This um, alternate origin for a character that they, at that point, already had a different direction for is anybody's guess. But I think that it has to be considered, and and I think that you have to kind of give credit where credit is due on this. Um, Certainly there are—I've you can. been contacted by people who said, you know, you can run the paper through tests and see how old it is. Well, in this case, it's not really going to make a difference because you're talking about something produced in 1939— um, or 1940, there's nothing sophisticated enough to be able to narrow it down within a month or two to be able to tell um, if if that were the case. And also, honestly, whether or not the um, the, um, the page was uh, done in 1939 or 1940, the ink is going to be of the same era, probably from the same bottles. The pages would have all been purchased at the same time and um, and in bulk, and so they would be older. So um it's it's not an easy test and no one is I don't think who has seen these would dispute their age that they are absolutely from the era that um that would be consistent with this um hypothesis. But I do welcome all of you to reach out. You can send me an email, info at popsequentialism dot com, and um I will address it on the pod sequential um podcast that you're listening to a future episode. And um, I hope that has helped to illuminate a little bit um, more on the story. Um, we've covered it a couple times now with, with Kevin Smith on his Man on Batman. And I felt like it was important to dedicate just an entire um, segment to it here on, on this show to give a little bit more deep background on, um, on how this came into my possession, um, what my initial thoughts were, And how it's proceeding. And to me, I feel like this page is too important to stay in my collection. That it should be in a museum. Um, And, you know, I... I did buy the extra page knowing that if this one page were something that I couldn't hang on to, that I at least had this other page from Jerry Robinson with Robin on it. Which was very important to me. So, um... You know, it's it's as a as a collector, I've had to let a lot of a lot of things go to go into other more important collections, um, and I understand that that's important to grow the hobby. As a gallerist, I know that it's important not to um, not to buy pieces that are on the walls until people um, other important collectors have a shot at them. Otherwise, the sales are bogus. Uh, it's not a practice I I engage in, and as I said, more importantly, you have to bring. Um, the right type of collectors to the hobby to elevate the art form for everybody. And as an advocate of sequential art as a legitimate fine art form, I feel like this piece should be hanging on a wall next to a Rothko and next to a dolly or next to some other incredible fine art. And I think that's a a good place to leave off. Um, I hope you've enjoyed uh, digging into this mystery inside an enigma in a riddle. And um, until next time, I am your host, Matt Kennedy. You have been listening to Pod Sequentialism.